I, I look at the planet, you know, that's, I think that when you, when you look at the various places around the world that are really challenged with access to, to safe, nutritious food, we, we're going to spend five lifetimes just solving that problem. And if, you know, depending on what statistics you choose to believe, by 2050, we're not going to be able to feed ourselves. You know, it's going to take twice the amount of dirt to grow the amount of food for the population, for what the population will be in 2050. So for me personally, that's my focus. And I, I would like to think that over the next five to 10 years, we'll see these farms landing all around the globe and our technology helping solve that problem. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura McIntosh. And I'm Joseph Nother. Of Note is powered by Scribble, South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. Join us as we talk with some of the most inspirational entrepreneurs, leaders, and scientists across the state as they share their experiences with invention, growth, funding, culture, and creativity. We take so many things for granted, like the ability to instantly get the food, water, and supplies we want whenever we need them. Rarely are we denied such convenience or privilege. An observation that was made starkly real during the pandemic, when people walked into supermarkets across the country only to be greeted by empty shelves. The world couldn't find supplies of everyday staples like paper goods, branded products, meat, and produce. I couldn't help but think about this when thinking about the mission our guest today has dedicated his time to. Don Taylor is spending himself on a radical rethink of how humans grow things. More specifically, he is focused on how to make agriculture more efficient and productive. Because if we don't, we might face the same dilemma in 20 or 30 years. If we are to sustainably feed everyone in 2050, to ensure that the shelves remain stocked, we will need Don and others like him to be successful. The current global population is 7.6 billion. It is expected to be 9.2 billion in 2050, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization and World Bank. The general consensus is that the global agricultural production has to be increased by about 60 to 70 percent from our current levels to meet the increased food demand in 2050. So again, how are we going to feed all these people without overwhelming our planet? Increasing the amount of arable land is an answer to increasing that food production, but it's really not the most sustainable. It leads to deforestation and the loss of habitat for more species. In short, what we have to do is we have to do more on the farms we have. We have to use resources more efficiently and we need to reduce waste. How are we gonna do that? Well, in short, the answer is technology and tenacity. Two things Mr. Taylor knows something about. So let's get started with our interview today. I'm Don Taylor, CEO of Amplified Ag. I, I've been a software industry professional for most of my career. I started as a software engineer. Uh, my last 10 years at Benefit Focus, I was the CTO. Benefit Focus is a SaaS-based benefits management platform. I retired from there in 2015. Prior to retirement, I started getting interested in the environment 
farming, agriculture, what was going on globally. I'd spent a lot of time in India and got to really understand the plight of the farmers in India, which then drove me to really understand is this a global problem, which I pretty quickly came to the realization that, that it is, and started to get a really solid understanding of what's going on from an environmental perspective and the plight of the farmers, you know, farms going out of business, bankruptcies, the whole nine yards. Really started Amplified Ag with, this, with the vision of creating some jobs for local farmers, for putting some healthy food into the local community and starting to understand how traditional farming and then the next generation technology farming could really work in unison to help solve a lot of these problems that are going on inside of the environment. Don was aware of issues in farming and he had the idea for how to approach the problems, but he had to get up to speed on agriculture pretty quickly to implement his shipping container model. So myself and a friend of mine were, I'd say, co-founders of Amplified Ag. And like I said, at the beginning, it was really just a matter of figuring out what agriculture was. I was a software person. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to grow anything. And as I got further and further into it, landed on shipping containers as the delivery mechanism. I'd done quite a bit of research and gone and visited large greenhouse environments and came to the conclusion that shipping containers would allow us to better tightly control the environmental, so controlling the temperature, humidity, CO2, all of those types of elements. Also, the shipping containers are very, you know, they're 320 square feet, so they provide a lot of segmentation from a food safety perspective. So if you do have an issue in one container, it's gonna be limited to that container, whereas a large greenhouse environment you could potentially lose the entire greenhouse in one fell swoop if something bad were to go wrong. These shipping containers are, well, incredibly simple on the outside, but on the inside, for someone who didn't know how to grow anything, Don has certainly become an agricultural expert. Here's how his shipping container farms actually work. It's, it's laughably simple, actually, but um, there's some complexity in it. So there's a nutrient tank that has nutrients in it that our horticulturists have defined that are most appropriate for leafy greens. And the, those nutrient tanks are in the back of the container. We have sensors in those tanks, and then we've built and designed our own doser. So we're basically in an automated, and the, so the horticulturists can go and define the high level of, of conductivity and pH and the low level. And then the software and the electronics maintain that level inside of the tank. So that nutrient water then is flowing through these channels nonstop out of the main nutrient tank. The levels are being tested nonstop. Nutrient level stays the same. And then the plant sits in basically, it's an NFT channel is, is what it's called and it's a nutrient film technique. So there's water running nonstop and creating a film along this channel. The roots hang in that nutrient level and the plants grow. And then the LED lights, which we also control and, and are, like I said, are building our own lights now, um, have a calculated amount of intensity that is gonna facilitate the fastest level of growth on the plants. We also have a CO2 generator in here, so plants consume CO2. In order for the plants to grow healthy, we have to put enough CO2 into the container that gets consumed by the plants that helps the plants grow at an accelerated rate. So then what will happen is that the farmers will then harvest the plants out of here, they'll go into a cold storage, they'll get packaged, and then I guess the other side of that is that we are generating 100,000 transactions of data out of these containers every day. So the software will allow the horticulturist to correlate 
all of the environmentals with a particular yield that came out of the farm. So, you know, if we get 3,600 plants and they all come out at size, all right, well, what were all the dynamics inside of the farm? Or if we have a poor yield, what happened during that time frame? And that's been a huge driver and then really being able to dial in and get the plants to a, to a saleable size and quality. That certainly sounds like the next generation of farming to me. While Don had to put in the time to learn agriculture, that doesn't mean he wasn't already well-equipped to address many of the complex issues associated with indoor ag. So I spent quite a bit of time just doing research and understanding what was happening inside of indoor ag. Over, over probably a year period or so, I got comfortable with the shipping container concept, got comfortable with the fact that you have to have software and technology to create a reliable, scalable environment. We also had the advantage that I was the founder of Boxcar Central, which is founded in 2002. Boxcar was a SaaS-based warehouse management software platform. That's the foundation of the platform that we have today. As I got further into it, you know, one of these containers has 3,600 plants in it. So it's a, it's a complicated logistics warehouse management problem as well. So we already had 15 years of experience managing food and traceability, inventory control inside of complex logistics environments. So we took that knowledge, built farming as we got to understand how the farms needed to operate, building in the components that the farmers really needed, and then in parallel, building in the electronics and management of capturing all of the sensor data. What seems like a small, interesting technology project was actually well-received by various communities, helping Amplified Ag to partner, grow, and scale up. Right, so as, as we got into the, probably the first year or so, we got a couple of containers running. The um, acceptance inside of the community was huge. So you know, we didn't really know what was gonna happen. We were thinking we'd have a couple of containers and, and it would not be that big of a thing. It'd be a fun technology project and create a few jobs. And as we, as we began to realize that there was a large market opportunity in this space as well, we came to the conclusion that we needed to be operating these farms as true farms and farmers. And most of the technology companies and farm manufacturing companies at that time were not operating farms. So, you know, through my entire career, you're obviously much better off. If you can operate the technology you're building, you're going to end up with a more appropriate technology for the problem you're trying to solve. So about two years into it, we met Andrew Hare and Matt Daniels, who they were uh, working on building an aeroponics system in, a, in, a, in their garage, actually. And they had the brand of Vertical Roots. So and we got to know them and they ultimately joined the company uh, brought the brand Vertical Roots with them and with the concept of them operating the production farms to prove that the technology worked, to prove that we could drive product into the community that people would buy the product. And if you fast forward a couple of years, they, they joined in mid 2017 roughly. Uh, we're now in 1500 plus retail grocery stores. We're our products sold in 12 states. So I, you know, I think that we've proven that the technology works, proven that the market will adopt it, and proven that from a farm process perspective, we can plant the seed, harvest it, package it, and distribute it to a, to a customer. In terms of adoption, a large steel shipping container is pretty far from the normal garden or farm you might conjure up in your mind. So why was this model so readily accepted? One of the driving 
forces behind the, the market adoption of the product, number one is just locally grown. So there is a, there's a movement. People want to know where their food is coming from. 95% of the lettuce and leafy greens in the United States today are grown in California and Arizona. So if you buy a product off the shelf that was grown in California, it's probably two weeks old by the time it gets to your table. So that, that's really the first advantage is that the consumer wants to buy something that's fresh. We do grow a very tasty plant. So, you know, I think the quality of our products is superior to other products that you'll find on the market. And a lot of that comes down to, to the technology and our ability to be able to manage the environment in such a tight fashion. So we, we can keep the temperature and humidity, CO2 levels, the nutrient levels, all controlled by the software and the technology, which does impact the quality of the plant. So that, that would be the first piece of it. The second is that the, the, the retail market and distributors are also trying to figure out how to mitigate risk with product that's two weeks old. If there's an E. coli, contamination. And what we've seen happen multiple times is they're coming from very large distributed environments where a recall gets very expensive and has to be pulled. You know, so they'll have to pull a significant amount of the product out of the supply chain if there's a recall. That costs whoever happens to hold, be holding the product a significant amount. Also, just the transportation costs. You know, if you look at what it costs to move a truck from California to the East Coast, that is also significant. And I guess the last piece would be the sustainability aspects of it. You know, you're eliminating the transportation, so you're eliminating quite a bit of carbon footprint in that, in that process. You're also eliminating fertilizers and pesticides that are being spread across very large areas of land. Water consumption, uh, our water consumption is minimal. And when you look at having the water hundreds and thousands of acres of land, that, that's also very meaningful and becoming more of a risk as time goes on in most portions of the country. Technology that allows incredible level of control, reduced logistical and financial risk, and incredibly sustainable practices, sort of a no-brainer. So let's look at where Amplified Ag is today. Today, we, we focus specifically on uh, varieties of lettuce. So, you know, we have a romaine, we have a green oak, we have a, a bib lettuce and like an incised type of product. And we've grown a lot of different herbs and we actually have a big pile of basil in there right now. We're, we're continually doing R&D on various products. But the interesting piece of it is that the market demand is so large that it gives us the ability to really focus on a few products. We are now beginning R&D on other types of varieties. So uh, we're actually getting ready to start an initiative with soybeans. I want to be able to grow high protein products. One of the initial visions of the company that I didn't mention was to be able to put these farms in places where people have serious food access issues. In many places of the world, lettuce might not be the right product to put in place to feed people. So, you know, starting to starting to experiment on those different types of varieties. But it's not just the varieties of products they can grow that's impressive, it's the volume as well. Perspective is a funny thing. When we, uh, our first container that we built had, I don't know, 3,000 plants in it. And our view was who in the world would ever need more than 3,000 plants. So the evolution of the scale has been interesting. We started with one container, thought that was a lot. And then as we started to understand the process of farming, we landed on four containers, which we thought 
you would never need more than four in a batch at a time. And then we put a processing facility in front of that and then very quickly realized that that wasn't gonna get it done. And we scaled to 27 pods. So what we refer to as a suite is 27 grow pods and a couple of propagation pods. And that evolution has really just been driven by our growing understanding of the industry and the capacity that it requires to build pallets and move pallets to a customer, the amount of cases that it takes to distribute, and then the efficiency levels that can be achieved based on how many people it takes to operate a certain number of containers. That's where it's come to. And now I would say that we're probably up to 33 pods today. You know, So it's really just coming down to dialing in the efficiency of the process of planting, transplanting, harvesting, and, and processing the product. So what is containerized farming? I it, it it's one of those words, you know, we see we see shipping containers, you know, going down the interstate or of course you see them at ports, but now you're actually farming in them. And um, it really is a simple, at least from a from an uneducated standpoint, very simple. You're taking repurposing containers that have been used for transport all over the world and now attempting to grow things actually inside of them. So, and what's interesting about that though is, you know, there are a lot of pros to doing this. And then, you know, I think Don kind of gets to a little, but maybe we'll talk a little bit more, more here in depth is there's a lot of challenges with trying to grow something that's accustomed to being outside in the sunlight now in a controlled environment that was not designed to ever grow anything, right? Yeah, and you know, for your listeners out there, uh, obviously you can't see this, but the it, you know the containers are heavily, heavily modified. They're 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 not you know we're not they're not just trying to like um, take take you know plants into the container and uh, trying to grow them. That there there is a whole infrastructure that uh, modifications that happen to the container. Um, you know, and as he's talked about, there's, there's software that controls the environment. There's the hardware that they've got to put in. So there's quite a bit of modification that's happening to these containers, but, um, well, so just some of the pros, seems like it's worth it, right? Well, it it depends who you are for vertical roots and amplified ag. Yes, it's, it's been worth it, but they have a very different business model than let's say, you know, a a small urban garden, uh, kind of project or, or even a, a, a prospective small business owner that's looking at starting their own containerized farm. Uh, so some of the pros, you know, again, as this is this is why shipping containers are designed the way that they are, highly mobile and modular, right? You can you can send them anywhere, and and you can be farming in theory anywhere, anywhere. anywhere. You right. don't need you're not controlled by land. And the first time we did this interview, to your point, right? They they were doing this really in the back of us of a strip uh, office environment. Yeah, you were mall. never like, guessing. Yeah, that yeah. was their original um, facility there outside of Charleston, and you would never guess that you were driving up and going to have a farming operation there. Right. Um. So yeah, easy to ship. They're compact and self-contained so meaning you know typically speaking you obviously like thousands a commercial farm is thousands and thousands of sprawling acres and this what we saw there was a very small footprint row after row yeah but you're telling me you can't stack them though correct you cannot stack them to my knowledge today and that has more to do with again a third just well yeah you don't want people like going up and down stairs and just the logistics of that um and in general, although COVID has impacted this a bit, but you know, pre-COVID, the containers are you're repurposing containers, so they're cheap 
and usually highly available, although that is a new challenge that they're seeing right now with COVID, that that's not just like the used car market and anything else that, that you thought was readily available right. is not as much the case anymore. Oh, with anymore. respect to the containers themselves. Yeah, the containers themselves are, let's right. just say, in normal circumstances, highly available and not expensive. You bring up something, though, that is actually relevant right now, maybe another advantage to this if you haven't gotten to that yet, and that is that the, the time to market potentially is a lot quicker because you you could have one of these farms very close to the end user and you mentioned COVID and I'm sort of just saying that because I have noticed here lately that you know buying produce from um, whatever grocer um, it is not lasting but a couple of days and then we're having to throw some of this out um, right now Um, I don't know whether that's because logistically there are issues right now with supply chains or what but you, you, you're transporting something from California here or from or imported into the U.S. and then getting transported to, say, the South. Um, it's taking quite a bit of time for that to happen. And it's and it's it's narrowing the uh, shelf life of these of this produce. Right. This this, on the other hand, yeah. could be could be in the store. And yeah, COVID has exacerbated an existing problem, which was already you know, all of most of the produce in the U.S. is coming from California or Arizona. I think that I think Don even references that. But containerized farming takes away that that logistic issue. And you really can be growing these hyper local. I mean, you even have examples of like restaurants have these behind them. And that's where all their fresh produce and herbs come from is, you know, behind the restaurant, not right. relying on a Cisco or some other big provider to bring you know the produce Producing. to them. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, you know, containerized farms, while they offer such benefit, but there's there's a lot of challenges to actually doing this again. You know, they're disrupting 2000 years worth of agriculture and now trying to do it in an environment that was never designed or intended to actually farm in. So things like control of that environment. Yes, that is both the pro. Right. You can control what's happening, the amount of light, the humidity, the water. But at the same time, you're, you're, yeah. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, you know, the, the antagonistic relationship between light and heat, meaning yeah. plants obviously need light. That's how they grow, but that produces heat and plants don't like heat. So how are you going to manage that in the container? They heat up. So it's, there's just, there's all of that sort of logistics that like people sort of maybe take for granted when they think about containerized farming. And then I even, I mean, I even equate it more to it's less of a farming operation and more of a manufacturing process. Um, there are very outlined steps and controls that have to be equated for, or, you, or you're not going to get the end product off that that you want. And so with that, it, this is a highly labor intensive process. This is not, you don't have robots in there doing this stuff. And again, it's it's a container. So it's made to actually be as efficient as possible with putting stuff in it, not necessarily people and plants. So just the, even the ergonomics and people working in and out of these facilities can be challenging. You have companies like Vertical Roots and Amplified Ag that have worked through that that iterative process but there's plenty of room for iteration and perfecting this yes right and there's even you know because you do have this ultimate control most might think well that means my yields are going to be you know off the charts amazing which they are but they're still inevitably with any kind of produce there are there's there's some that just don't make the mark and they don't make it into the supermarket so just being realistic in the expectations sort of from all angles of it that Containerized farming is a, a highly orchestrated process that has immense potential, but it's just still in its beginning 
stages, I would say. Don's got a little more work to do, doesn't he? He does have a little more work. To, and he, he, he talks about that, how they're trying to find, you know, better ways of powering these things because they're very um, uh, energy like suckers. Uh, and so if you were going to hypothetically drop one of these in a desert, that's a very obviously a very different logistic issue than dropping them in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in the pursuit of innovation, visit us at scribblesc.com for exclusive video interviews, news from around the state, and a comprehensive list of resources to advance your ideas. That's scribblesc.com. Don and company are growing Amplified Ag in a focused and strategic fashion with a strong understanding of how to make the greatest impact in the areas in which they operate. That's no accident. I'm a firm believer in, in focus. When you're bringing a new product to market, whether it's software or a widget or lettuce or however you may quantify that, that you start in one place and you dominate that place. So our, our objective was Charleston, South Carolina. We spent the first year working with several of the local food distributors and pre-COVID were in virtually every restaurant in Charleston, which was really that first step towards brand awareness. And then we moved to Columbia and have slowly radiated out from there. So if I'm ever gonna counsel somebody on bringing a new product to market, you always wanna be as focused and you wanna become a market leader in the smallest segment possible and then you slowly radiate out and become a market leader, you know, one ring at a time. That has proven to be true for us, where we started in South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, we're now in Alabama, we're in Tennessee, and we went to Virginia, Washington, DC. So slowly building out, it's, in my view, is, is the right way to implement a new innovation. Slowly building out also helps Amplified Ag scale efficiently and quickly if ever needed. Yeah, so architecturally, the shipping containers, you know, there's, there's a couple of things that we need to look at from a scalability perspective. First is the architecture of the farm itself. So the shipping containers are being built here in Charleston today while we're preparing a site in Atlanta at a distribution center. What that really means is that from the time that we break ground or sign a lease agreement with a distributor, within 90 days, we can have a functioning farm at their facility up and running. A traditional build, if you're building a large greenhouse or, or some other type of environment, you're looking at a year, 18 months, you know, if everything goes well. It also allows us to get right to the distributor's uh, back door. So we have multiple deals we're working on today where these farms are gonna be deployed at the back door of the distributor, which eliminates an entire leg of transportation. Farm architecturally, that's gonna give us the ability to deploy these farms around the world in a rapid fashion. And then the software and technology platform was also built from an enterprise globally scalable perspective. So we are a software company. I mean, that's the roots of who we are as a software company. So we've built a SaaS-based, multi-tenant, uh, multilingual, scalable platform that will be able to follow these farms around the planet, you know, giving mobile access to the farmers. And, and in a lot of cases, other farming operations have built their technologies to manage their environment, whereas we've, managed, we've built our technology to manage other people's environments all under one SaaS-based platform. With a business that connects so many sectors, technology, agriculture, logistics, comes quite a bit of research and development. Yeah, we have multiple categories of R&D. 
So if you, if you start from the farming perspective, we are out growing other plants, which requires understanding light intensity levels, nutrient levels, temperatures, humidities, everything that it takes to make a plant be successful. And that horticulture exercise then translates into the technology R&D, which is, hey, in order to meet these goals, we have to add these three new types of sensors, which means we need to go through an R&D process to implement those sensors. That also may drive R&D inside of the actual configuration of the farm. So you know, we, we need to be able to grow a soybean. Well, they need to be this tall rather than this tall. So there may be some configuration pieces so our mechanical engineering team will be thinking about, okay, now these things need to be able to scale up and down you know, vertically as well. When you look at the operations of the farm, so the, the farmers are getting more and more progressive in, in how they're seeding, transplanting, harvesting, packaging, putting product in the trucks. There's always evolution within the software itself on how, how can the software better help the farmer you know, more effectively do their job. The other side of it is we're doing R&D projects on solar today. So, you know, we are also looking at how can we drive down power consumption. As this expands globally, we need to be able to drop these farms and not plug into a big power grid. We need to be able to power them ourselves. So, you know, there's different levels of innovation going on through the, through the whole process. My my husband, Colin, actually has personal experience with Dawn and, and uh, Vertical Roots. Um, he joined them early on when they were just sort of getting their facility in Columbia set up. He had... He's always had like this, you know, kind of um, interest in the hydroponic farming. And he was like, it just happened to have this operation setting up. And so he joined like at the base level, like Was he working like employee number like five or something? Something like that. And, and you know, he, he just wanted to learn how these systems worked and because um, he had some different aspirations long term. But, you know, he I, I remember like joking with him. I said, you know, they, they've raised some great money. But this is still a startup very much. This is their first facility at scale. So I was just kind of like warning him like things haven't been figured out. Yeah. Yet. And this you are you are part of a roller coaster experience. Like just be prepared for that. And so yeah. I just remember watching him come home with like <laughs> these stories and, you know, and, and just again, exhausted because part right. of that not just growing, but going through that experimentation phase with him of how is this gonna work? And I think his title was changing like every two weeks. I would joke with him. So like what do you do now today? I actually don't know what you do today. I just know you're out there for like 15 hours um, working with them. And uh, and he would have, I mean, and again, like I said, not all product makes it uh, on the shelf. And so he, he brought home, uh, the first time he brought home this huge trash bag. And yes, it was a trash bag of lettuce. I was like, we will never eat all of this. There's just the two of us. Like we're gonna have to get rabbits, goats. I don't know, but it lasted forever. Oh, the produce itself. The produce itself lasted forever, at least two weeks. It was. And it was. Was it? Was it delicious? I did not think. I would never describe lettuce of having a fragrance or texture to it that this does have. And it, I, I, the only thing I can equate it to is it really is just a superior product that is not literally, like I said, been trucked in from across the country. And it is, and I was already a veggie eater to begin with, but this like, this really now like up the game. And now it's like the only lettuce I bring home uh, is, is vertical it's roots vertical lettuce. lettuce. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is just that it's worth it. It's amazing to think that there's generations of people who don't, who haven't really tasted produce the way 
that it used to be. We used to be. Yeah, I mean, myself, and now that you're sort of saying that, I'm thinking to myself, it's it. You know, we've we've all grown accustomed over generations to store bought stuff. You know, and unless you're on a farm or or have access to that kind of produce or go out of your way to to source from one. You probably have no idea what a well, and so that, like. that so like in, so again, getting back to the Alaska piece of it, um, my husband's actually in Alaska right now. Um, you know, again, his his motivations with working with vertical roots had more to do with learning how how containerized farming works. And actually, Don now sits; uh, he is starting his own nonprofit called Outpost Ag, and it's all about you know taking these containers, these operations to truly remote areas where they are basically food deserts. They can't grow their own produce. You know, take Alaska. It's just too wet. They don't have, they don't have the physical dirt for it. So everything that they eat truly is brought in by ship from Seattle. So nothing. So it's more expensive because of it. You know, the quality is not as great. So anyways, um, and and it's actually, when you hear Don talk, it was actually more of the model they thought vertical roots would go and it just sort of took on a life of its own to what it is today um but yeah he's the first he's one of their first to sort of actually but he's doing it under a nonprofit model and the first to now start really foraging these in true outposts that's really cool yeah and, and to your point then in that case it would be like alaskans if they ever had the chance to actually taste food the way it maybe was <laughs> meant to be well, and would it we appreciate come through this this option, right? Yeah, and would we appreciate actually eating veggies more because well, I was thinking, they actually taste like good. Two kids, you know, I was like, <laughs> wow, this is actually really good. Yeah. You know, I don't not not want it. Yeah. One of the big challenges early on in this business in this industry was lighting. You know, lighting is a massively it, it is the most important part of the grow process. And you know, we started six years ago with LED technologies that did not work very well, and we were getting poor plant quality. And we just kept iterating on light types. And now we're actually to the point where we're starting to build our own lights. You know, so it's it's always a matter of taking a look at what you have today. Does it work? Does it not work? If it doesn't work, what are the things that we need to do to make it work? And really understanding what are the requirements. So I, you know, I almost don't see it as failures, as more of just a, t- a test and a result. And then based on that result, you go one direction or the other. Oftentimes those tests and results are what lead to innovation. I always start with necessity is the mother of invention, right? I think that we just all, you look at the way something is operating or you look at problem in the world or you look at a problem in a office or wherever the case may be, there's always opportunity to improve productivity, to improve quality, to improve visibility, to improve health, whatever the case may be. And I think you get passionate on that and then you apply a discipline of how you define what it is that you're gonna try and accomplish and have a controlled, to some degree, controlled chaos sort of way in which you go about innovating and getting that technology to a place where it can operate. I believe you, tr- you do that as fast as you can so that you can get it into a production environment. And that's where you really start to learn where the problems are and the areas that need improvement. And what Don believes is the biggest hurdle to innovation? Probably the, the biggest challenge with innovation typically is however it's working today, right? So inertia, moving past the, the status quo and looking outside of the box. That's a, that can be a very difficult thing to do. As engineers, we've spent a lot of time designing something and understand how it works, but there may be a much better way outside of the box. And that, that in my experience, is typically the biggest challenge with innovation. And, you know, and then when you get into a production environment, 
and now all of a sudden you have customers and you have deadlines and you have things that you have to get done. You can't let those demands get in the way of innovation as well. But above all else, you have to have the desire for change to be innovative. For Don, as he mentioned throughout, improving the experience of the average farmer and sustainability are his driving forces. For me, it, it really, it started with the farmer. You know, that was where, I, that was my first understanding was the plight of the farmer. First, just what a very difficult way it is to make a living. But then as you looked at the challenges that they were facing, and then when you layered on top of it, global climate change and the impacts that that has to the complexity that they're trying to execute under, that's what really got my, my wheels spinning. And over the last year or two, I've really started to get a keen understanding of what's going on in the environment. It's taken me a while, honestly. You know, I, I did not understand a year ago even that if you put food into a landfill, it creates methane, which is 25 times worse than carbon dioxide. So you start to think about that and you start thinking about the large scale waste of food and why is there a large scale waste of food? You look at what's happening in the oceans, you, know, you, you start adding all that up and then you look at it and see a solution that we really need to use less land, we need to use less water, we need to use less pesticides, you know, all of those things add up to, that's how we can start to heal the planet. As we've heard from many behind innovations geared towards social good, generating a profit can be one of the greatest challenges. You do have to, you have to make more money than you spend at the end of the day, right? So the, the best altruistic exercises, from my perspective, the best models for most businesses are gonna to be to generate a positive profit. And that positive profit then can be used for more good. If you're continually having to work around that, work around cash flow, that certainly can, can inhibit the, the growth. But when you look at, from my perspective, there's so many challenges in the planet today, and there's so many commercial activities that, uh, you know, if I just look at the well-being of the planet, there's a multitude of opportunities inside of that category that people are spending money on today, and you just need to find alternative methods. I do believe that the globe is getting much smarter on what's happening to our environment, and people are willing to pay for that, which also helps fund these types of innovations. Bill Gates talks about in his book, A Green Tax, and it does cost money to innovate and to make things better. And we just have to find places where that lines up and you can match a revenue stream to, to that innovation. So how did Don fund Amplified Ag and launch this startup? Out of the gate, myself and my partner initially, we, we got this thing off the ground and we funded it for a couple of years. You know, I was very fortunate to be able to do that. As we got further down the path and really began to realize that there was a market, a huge market opportunity at the same time of changing the way the world feeds itself, we went out and started raising capital. And we've, I do spend a lot of my time raising capital to fund this, this operation. And one of our core objectives, which will happen sooner than later, which I think every company should be targeting towards this, is to get to a cash flow positive where you're, you know, it's very difficult when you're growing a rapid business with a lot of capital intensity because you're never going to get cash flow positive in that state. So our model is, is to get the current operations to a point where, yes, the, the farms do generate a positive cash flow, 
the technology generates a positive cash flow, and then it's really a matter of growth. How fast do you want to be growing and how much capital does it take to do that? Because Don entered this industry late into his career, we wondered if he followed the advice many young entrepreneurs receive, find a mentor. Yeah, well, I, I'm surrounded by people who definitely uh, could help me significantly with that. You know, I, I do believe in getting help when you don't understand a component of it. I, I know that I'm good at building software and technology. And there's a lot of things that I'm not good at, and I don't feel bad about that. And you know, I think as a, as a young entrepreneur, that's an important thing to understand is that you, you have to do what you're good at, and then you have to find people to help fill in the blanks. So first, surrounding yourself with people that you like is, is important. Um, you know, my, my good friend is also co-founder of the company, so that obviously that helps. Um, we have very different paths and very different skill sets, but it just is building out the team, building out people, building it out with people that are very like-minded. Uh, you know, I, I believe respect is the foundation of everything we do. So I'm not going to, at this point in my life, you know, work with people that I don't respect and that don't respect other, you know, the people around them. That that's absolutely core. And you know, I've always believed once you once you have that foundation, then really the rest of it works itself out. Finally, why is ESG or environmental, social, and good governance so important for companies to be involved in? Ultimately, there's going to be more and more of a demand for transparency. So ESG is fairly new. You know, you're starting to see corporations publish reports. And I saw just, just the other day, the SEC is now actually going to start auditing ESG compliance, which is, so if you're a publicly traded company and you're, you're making ESG claims, all of a sudden you're going to be held accountable to those claims, which I think is very important. ESG is hard for, for businesses. You know, there's a lot of, you know, whether you're looking at the, the, um, planet impacts that your business is doing and really taking it back to your suppliers. That's a lot of work and it's a lot of expense to do that. And then your actual operations themselves, being able to start managing, monitoring and reporting on those results requires a lot of effort. And then from a community perspective, it's really the same thing. I mean, it, it takes energy to get out into the community, to participate, to go pick up trash off the side of the road, whatever the, the case may be. So for us, we have, like anybody else, it's a lot of work in a lot of different categories, but we have a dedicated sustainability team now. We do have a dashboard in place, so we're starting to put measures. The hard part with that is when you start measuring something, typically the score is not going to be where you want it to be. I think that there's a, whether you're reporting on metrics for a board meeting or whatever the case may be, people don't typically like showing poor numbers, but I think creating the culture of there's a starting point and there's a baseline, and then there's a set of objectives that are going to get that baseline number somewhere better than it is right now, and a set of true actions that are going to occur to make that happen, to me, is what's most important in that. That's what we're going to be continuing to drive towards. Uh, we'll be putting this dashboard in front of our board and you know, we'll hold ourselves accountable to it. And I believe that a lot of companies are feeling the same way and understanding that this climate issue that we have is all of our responsibilities. And a lot of what ESG is driving towards is exactly that. I'm Don Taylor, and those were my notes on innovation. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review. 
Join us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Scribble Innovation. And don't forget, sign up for our newsletters. Special thanks to my co-host, Laura McIntosh, the Managing Director of the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. Additional thanks to our team, producer and editor, Hunter Foster, sound engineers, Mike Deering and Samuel Thomas, original music by Matt Honkinen, with additional support from Tia Nelson, Sarah Plemons, Ronnie Wilson, Robin Hendricks, and Lexi Williams. Next time on Of Note. So at Red Ventures, we help consumers make life's most important decisions. And we do that through premium content and customized online experiences. And we help consumers in some of their most important areas like health, wealth, financial services, entertainment, technology, and education.